0: Miners report.
1: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens.
2: Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, joining you on this fine Sunday from a very sunny and warm Berlin. Small matter of 16,107 kilometers in eight hours from Wollongong my name is Daniel Friber I am the host of today's episode of the cycling podcast as we look back at the well what some would call the main event of the UCI World Championship week certainly the main event as far as the men were concerned the road race which took place just a few hours ago joining me today I have two very special guests joining me from Villefranche-sur-Mer. He is the current AG2R Citroën professional and veteran of one world championship as discussed in our pre-worlds episode. He's also a Tour de Swiss stage winner and the 2017 US national road race champion. He has more charisma than Michigan, has fresh water, dispenses more insight than his home state, sells 7-11 slurpees. They're apparently the leading, the leading state on that score. He's our sunshine on a cloudy day. When it's cold outside, he's our month of May. I guess you'd say, what can make us feel this way? It's the Motown Marvel, Lucky Larry Warbass. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm slightly afraid that that, 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 <laughs> reference, that that reference is lost on the Motown Marvel. Larry, do you know where that came from? Uh-
1: uh, oh, I don't know where that came from other than the fact that I'm from Detroit but I don't know who the Motown Marvel is.
2: Well you're so. the Motown Marvel but th- that was yeah. their,
1: that was they were
2: famous lines plagiarized from a very famous song um my girl by the temptations the temptations of course one of the more famous motown bands one of the more famous motown exports larry um in the musical world at least Seven Eleven slurpees ever had one larry apparently a, oh, a big oh,
1: big <laughs> have i had one i'm sure i'm one of the biggest <laughs> contributor to michigan <laughs> being uh, number number Oh man they're, they're the best that's one thing i miss over here in france you know you finish a hot ride get a slurpee it's like the best thing ever
2: well, Larry, let's go now to a man who I'm sure, I'm fairly confident, has probably never had a 7-Eleven Slurpee. I Join, <laughs> joining me from Pietrasanta in Tuscany, where Michelangelo used to go for his marble, and the cycling podcast goes nowadays for something equally smooth, rare, and, yes, expensive. His opinions, he is an author, a philosopher, a winemaker, the founder and former manager of Leopard Trek, the ex-Team Sky, Team CSC, and Greenwich Spin Spin Doctor... And according to Danish Wikipedia, bartender at the Loosening Crow. I hope I've pronounced that right. I, I'm sure I haven't. Um, he is so unpopular in Belgium that the Netherlands want to adopt him, even more so after today or after the podcast we're about to record, I'm sure. He is Brian Nygaard. Thank you, Daniel.
0: Thank you very Brian,
2: much. Brian, stunned, stunned silence. Well, first of all, um some business to attend to brian what's the pronunciation of the bar where you used to, the very gnarly rough bar you told me the other day where you used to work
0: uh you're pretty close the re- correct pronunciation is listening call.
2: and was it as gnarly as you told me the other day Lots pretty much bra- i think i was like from bra- my generation mean so the, the thick from- of all of them
0: i think from my generation i was the only one who didn't get beat up Um, Oh, you could probably compare it to where Larry's last name stems from, Warbasse, which is also a Danish (laughs) town in the middle of nowhere.
2: Well, Brian, I also mentioned your past as your past life as a very well-respected team press officer, communications director, and in fact, before we get on to talk about the racing today, I thought it'd be interesting to ask you about another sort of subplot of this World Championships. Um, our colleagues at Cycling Tips uh, have had one of their, or well, it's been it's been written about, it's been documented that one of their journalists was denied access to the World Championships, denied accreditation. Ian Traylor, I think, is is how you pronounce his name, and. Well, the UCI's explanation for why this was was pretty meek, and I think most people have decided that it's mainly because Ian Trailer has written a lot of very good pieces which have been very critical of the UCI, um, notably their relationship with Turkmenistan and the head of state there. Now, Brian, before we do get to the racing, I just thought it would be interesting for the listeners to hear from you. Um, Put yourself in the UCI's shoes. Put yourself in David Lapartion's shoes. Um, the truth is that you're quite happy with your relationship with Turkmenistan, and you're quite happy about the way you've conducted yourself. On as regards these other matters that Ian Trailer has written about, um, and you really don't want him at the World Championships. You don't want a free press. You want to shut access down to people who are going to be critical.
0: What do you do? <laughs> well, then you do what exactly what they did, but it's it's really it's a massive fail, isn't it? And you it know, and. In strategic communication, you they actually ended up getting what you call a double crisis. So initially, you have a crisis because there's a conflict. And then you get a, a secondary crisis on top of the original one by how poorly you manage the crisis that you are in. So it doesn't go away because you made some pretty severely, horribly devastating decisions. And then for for how, especially Lapacham, because he is the face of the UTI in, in many respects, he comes out a loser from all of this and it's um you know cycling media is is because of the past of cycling and because of the relevance of um of critical journalism in our sport this this would never go down well and it's completely predictable that people there would be an outcry of of how ridic- rid- ridiculous it is to deny someone of the accreditation and 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 his explanation for it is is just as ridiculous as the decision, because he says, "Oh, you know, only a certain amount of media, uh, accreditations per media." Or, uh, we've all Which seen. Which we
2: know, other- yeah. We we we're yeah. pretty sure that that's not the case. I mean, we've all been at World Championships, or perhaps Larry, you haven't been in the press room, but we've been at World Championships when, and there have been media that have been very heavily represented to the tune of more than three yeah. reporters. But
0: but don't forget that this is also a, a very far away, World Championships uh, venue for a lot of nations, you know, and, and I think it, it would, how can it be a problem that you grant someone an extra because they're, they're you know, from or based in the country where the World Championships are. There, there is no good excuse for all this, it? and Le Pachan comes out of this losing a lot of credibility.
2: A good example, I think our colleague, another of our colleagues, Ned Bolting, astutely pointed out on Twitter the other day of what's known as the Barbara Streisand effect. So-called because um, Barbara Streisand, at the beginning of the 21st century, she brought a lawsuit to try to... Um, get um, aerial photos of I think her Californian mansion, this is the kind of thing that could have happened to you Brian, Um, removed from publication and of course this drew more attention, well there there was no real interest in Barbara Streisand's mansion prior to that Um, but as a result of it there was an awful lot of interest and there's an awful lot of interest in, um, as I said, Ian trailers excellent articles and you know if you if you're going to sort of pick your fights, you can be you can pretty much guarantee that someone who's been critical of the UCI in the past, if you deny them accreditation and you deny them access, they're going to be even more critical in the future. So pretty counterproductive. Well, it, al- it also
0: suggest. it also it also highlights that that this is a there is problematic journalism that that you know we need to highlight, and and I don't think he's gotten any less readers from you know from his from what I believe is is, is pretty genuine investigative journalism. You know, I don't think they've done anything good to to tone that down or put it into perspective by denying him access. On the contrary.
2: Brian, moving on, are you ready for the dubious responsibility of the summary, the race summary time trial, the most unpopular feature in cycling podcasting? um, (laughs) Hated by at least 60% of our listeners, but essential to how we make this program, uh, certainly at the moment at least Um, with Lionel on a bit of a break are you ready Brian
0: the answer is yes you know I'll I'll take it on the chin try not to alienate
2: sorry try not to alienate too many people you can do that that people have been
0: telling me that all my life why do do people keep telling me that
2: (coughs) well Brian Nygaard I am going to count you in um you're rolling down the ramp and you have 90 seconds to tell us not just what happened today but also to just fill in a few gaps on what happened over the course of the world championship week off you go
0: so the 2020 world championships men's elite race was a 2266 266 kilometer race from helensburg to wollongong it was off to a very explosive start with some serious attacking On the initial uh, so-called Mount Kirolap, an 11-man group was formed. Uh, The most notable thing happening in the early part of the race was that uh, Matthew Vanderbilt quit after 30 kilometers. There was a big, one of many, but there was a big initial French acceleration that went went on the attack and some rather serious names got caught up behind. They eventually came back to the main group. Uh, But but the big front group was joined by uh, a strong quintet so that it left uh, some 25 riders uh, in the front uh, late into the um, laps in Wollongong. A very decisive attack happened with 59 kilometers to go when Evan and Paul came to the front and that eventuated in a 25-man front group whose lead was hovering for a bit until it became clear that the next world champion was to be found in that group. And so it went with El- El- Evan and Paul going on the attack with uh, 25 kilometers to go. The only uh, rider able to follow him initially was Lutsenko. He then got dropped as uh, Evander soloed home to uh, Rainbow Jersey with um, a five-man group chasing him, thinking they were going to be fighting it on for the medals, but they did a massive blunder in the last kilometer looking at each other and they eventually got caught by what you would call the favorite group and that uh, meant the bronze uh, was, um, sorry, the silver medal went to Laporte, bro- uh, bronze for Michael Matthews of Australia. And that means that the winner's table for the road races in this year's Championships are as following: enemy van Vloten winning the women's elite race, Yevgeny Fedorov the under-23 men's for um, Kazakhstan, Niam Fisher-Black riding for New Zealand won the under-23 women. There was the same race at the the women's elite. Emil Herzog from Germany won the men's junior title, and Zoe Baxter won the women's junior title.
2: Well. Brian, you ran over by about 25 seconds, but we'll grant you that. We're feeling charitable, even if you will not be feeling charitable when we come to speak about it. Remco Avonapol, I suspect. But excellent job there. Um, chaps, what, what were your hot takes or what were your feelings watching the race? So this is, well, maybe this is team Brian up um, for the expected tirade a little bit too early. But, but Larry, let's go to you first. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I just, mean- just, just tell us how you watched it, where you watched it, and how, how you felt
1: watching the race so i woke up like a little bit later today so i woke up for like the last 10k of the race and then i obviously like i went back and watched how everything happened but when i turned on the tv remco had a lead of over a minute solo ahead of lutsenko um who was solo ahead of like a group behind and uh yeah, I think pretty much as soon as Remco can get off the front alone, there's no one that can really catch him unless it's like an ex- insanely motivated, really smooth, well-oiled group behind. Um so, yeah, I was like, wow, that's pretty impressive. And I can't say I was all that surprised when when that was the situation when I turned on the TV. But uh, it was definitely impressive nonetheless, I mean, to turn around after uh, the Vuelta and do that. And then, yeah, I went back and I, I watched, you know, how the race kind of like played out and broke down. And, you know, it looked like the French race super aggressively, um, which, interesting, like didn't pay off the way that they expected it to. They still ended up second with Christophe Laporte, which... I think after seeing how the race played out, they're really happy with. Um, But but yeah, it was an interesting race, but I don't think there was anything you could do against Remco Evinopol today.
2: Brian, I'm not going to let you have your say on Remco just yet, and we'll talk in much more detail about the race and the tactics of the various nations in the second and third parts. But what about the course because i think a lot of people having seen the first road races the under 23s the women's the junior women's the um, junior men's there were a few mixed feelings about this course it was it was unusual i mean we talked last week larry didn't we about the number of corners however what i guess we didn't mention and we didn't well i didn't think about was the roads were so wide yeah that there were no real okay there were there was some occasions when riders were sprinting out corners but it wasn't that maybe as attritional as we thought i mean i heard riders say in the build-up having recon the route that they didn't use their brakes once um on the whole wow. on the yeah. whole circuit so brian what did you think just generally before we get into the you know the runners and riders about the race itself and the
0: course. I think it it can be misleading when you only judge it by the amount of climbing, which was just short of four thousand, which is significant. Uh, but it would always be as as world championships are when there are a lot of laps. You know, then and that's different from year to year. But this year it was twelve, so it it often sort of oscillates between being quite tactical or just being uh, extremely hard. And I think it was. It was a, we, There was a final that we never had because the, um, the the winning move came relatively early. I mean, it came very early. So for that reason, it was sort of it left us with wanting more. I mean, we never saw Pogaccia really. We never saw Buffonat really. We never saw those big names fight it out between each other. And I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure whether that's all down to the parkour or not. But but it 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 didn't. It it probably wasn't hard enough for them to either jump across or make a difference late in the race because Evenepoel basically closed the book uh, by already at the point when he opened up the final.
2: Well, I'll tell you what, chats We'll talk, as I said, in more detail in just a moment about who got it right, who got it wrong. But let's hear from the new world champion, shall we? Winner now this year of a monument, Jez Bastogneje, of course. Um, winner of the Wedtla Espana. And now, at 22 years of age, the world road race champion. Let's hear Remco Evenepoel.
0: I think uh, how we raced today was really like a, like a team and uh, as we said before, it doesn't matter how, but we want to become world champion with the team and uh, something that, uh, that I've been dreaming of. Um, and then now after a monument, a big classic, a Grand Tour and now world champion, I think I won everything I could win this year. So I think a better season like this, uh, I think I will never have. <laughs>
1: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159.
3: Euros thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. This is Lionel here talking to you from my hotel room in Peterhead in Aberdeenshire. That's in Scotland for those who are not familiar with where Peterhead is. Simon Gill and I are on the final stretch of our Tour de Cos cycle tour visiting all of the Scottish Football League grounds. and today we rode 128 kilometres in five hours from Montrose, up the coast to Peterhead. I'm not going to lie, I did have a bit of a tailwind for some of the day. Certainly on the run-in, the wind picked up and gave us a nice helping hand home. Uh, But the payoff for that was that it started raining, so you can't have it all, can you? I've been trying to stay in my performance zone over the last few days to get the best out of this experience. And if you want to use Super Sapiens to improve your performance, go to supersapiens.com. Super Sapiens can give you all kinds of insights into how your body responds to certain types of food and to exercise and to rest and to stress. So go to supersapiens.com. Now back to Daniel, Larry and Brian and their coverage of the World Championships, which I watched by getting up extra early this morning and yesterday morning to see Annemiek van Vleuten and Remco Evenepoel win their rainbow jerseys.
2: Well, that was the man of the moment, the man of the day, the man of the year, some would say, Um, the new giant, uh, shades, echoes of L'Equipe's headline the day after Eddie Merckx won the 1969 Tour de France, maybe, Le Nouveau Géant. Chaps, he was the man of the day, we didn't mention in the first part another man of the day, uh, in a certain sense, Mathieu van der Poel, rest assured we will be discussing van der Poel and what befell him later in the episode. But let's get to Remco and, well, I will, I will preface this part with what my reading of the way the race turned out was that whether by design, and I think some of it was design, but also thanks to the way a lot of the other teams rode, particularly the French, um, this race ended up being set up absolutely perfectly for Remco to do what Remco does and attack on his own. I think that, you know, the French butchered the meat, they marinated it, they hung it in the front window of a Spanish Bottega, they did absolutely, they skewed it, they did absolutely everything that Remco needed to then throw it on the barbecue and, you know, I don't know, cook his steak the way he wanted to them. A slightly, a slightly forced metaphor or analogy, I know, but um, I think basically the French made it very, very hard Um, from the start, particularly with Bruno Armirai on the first climb of Mount Kilda. And what that meant was that when a chase needed to start behind Remco, no one had the numbers and no one had the, well, the conviction at that point. What do you think, Larry?
1: Yeah, I mean... I, 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 the thing is, is if you look at any of the last races, like, I don't know if you watched some of the races at the end of last year when Remco won all these races solo, you know, like one in Belgium, some in Italy, stuff like that. I just think in the end, no matter how motivated you are, the guy, like once he gets off the front alone, I just think he's unstoppable. You know, like, uh, I think, you know, he's just so compact and he has so much power that, uh, you know. He's just so quick when he's on his own, um, and he can sort of get into his time-trialling mode. And I-, I think no matter how motivated they were behind, once he got into that scenario, like uh, there was no beating him.
2: Should they chat, Brian, maybe this is one for you then. In that light, and again, looking at the French and maybe being hypercritical of the French, but they did have the strongest team in the race, I think. Most people agreed that beforehand. Um, the French never ride defensively. Um, and by defensively, I mean trying to control the race. And this, there's a lot of Thomas Vauclair there, selector, their coaches of personality, I think, in the way they race and race today. Some might call it a little bit sort of narcissistic, a little bit showboaty. Um, and and not really taking to, into account or into account enough that there are... 20-odd other teams with their own plans and their own leaders who will try to, well, will also try and impose their will upon the race. The French seem to be absolutely determined to have it their way. I don't know. What do you think, Brian? I,
0: I think it really balances well with the, how I look at the French in general and, and not just <laughs> um, for, the, for the esprit de Vauclerc on on the French national team. Uh, they they want to dictate uh, the race as they want to dictate so many other things uh, in, in, <laughs> in the world of politics and uh, UCI accreditations. But um, I, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely spot on. But, but I also I, I like the way that they did it because, like I said initially also, mm-hmm. the, this parkour would, would oscillate between being very selective or a little bit down to chance. But the French made sure that it was less down to chance. But the only thing they had to deal with, which they eventually couldn't, even if Bade did his very best, was that Evanepol went into the mix early on after they made it so hard. That, that It meant that they isolated a lot of the other big favorites and they had more cards to play, especially knowing not knowing whether Philippe would have been there or not. And he wasn't. So it was a smart move by them. They played the cards. And I, I you know, kudos to them also for getting a silver medal. I think that was the best anyone else could do. So
1: I kind of agree. I actually I watched Vauclair's interview after the race too. And, you know, he said, Okay, the only you know, like the big error we made was not having Benoit or Madwas, you know, um, in that group when it split because they were kinda of like the ones driving. So he said, you know, they uh were missing some vigilance. But um You know, again, yeah, I I agree. It's like I think second place is pretty much the best anyone could do against Remco today.
2: I mean, the fact that Christophe Laporte won the sprint would possibly suggest, and this is, you know, this is Monday morning quarterback stuff, but would suggest that they had the fastest guy in the race who could get over the climb and perhaps should have been controlling it as a result and not, and doing everything in their power not to let someone like Remco... Even a pool get away when he did. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I yeah, but said I mean, I, when- think,
1: I think hindsight's twenty twenty because the thing is, is no one before today would have said Christophe Laporte's going to win the sprint out of the group at the end. You know?
0: No. No. I but I, it, I think it, there's a part of that also, I mean, and that's obviously also hindsight, but the fact that the five man group chasing, or, or <laughs> I guess they weren't actually chasing Evan pool at this point, they were just trying <laughs> to sort themselves out for the rest of the podium. They just made a, a huge mistake, and because yeah. of the, the mediocre TV production, we actually don't know exactly what happened. But the gap that they thought they had to the group behind them wasn't as big as as it as it was, because once they hit the last kilometer and they were trying to poker it out to not take any leads going into the sprint, they, they were just breathing down their neck. One, and that I think that was we, we never really saw how that changed how that chase became so efficient. That's true. That's true. And then, because they yeah. were they were busy. Uh, live documenting the hogs between Nepal and his one year so we actually missed out on a very key <laughs> part of the of the final
1: i mean it was crazy to see though at 1k to go not one guy in that group was actually pedaling you know like they all were at a standstill which mm-hmm. you know usually Early. is not a recipe for yeah. for success yeah no. yeah especially and then Encorn I mean, came back with like a ton of speed and if he would have just kept going he would have gotten second like, yeah. he had enough speed when he passed them, and his huge enough gap, he would have gotten second. But instead, he, like, watched everyone and yeah. stopped pedaling also, which was just crazy. I mean, he obviously wasn't aware that, like, you know, the speed that he had, that he was coming from behind, and how slow they were going, but uh, that was kind of funny to watch.
2: I mean, we saw in the women's race, didn't we, how fast that last kilometer and a half was, and how dangerous it was if you, if you allowed yourself to lose momentum. or or hesitated at that point, then someone could come up from behind, as Van and did, certainly in a women's race. Um, Larry, what about the influence of radios, or lack of radios? Because, I mean, certainly, Wout van Aert, when asked why he was attacking, effectively, um, on... It was the last lap, wasn't it? It was the last climb of Mount Pleasant. Um, He was attacking well behind. I mean, he, he gave a fairly plausible explanation that, you know, they had an agreement that if there were still a lot of riders down the road, that he could still kind of ride his own race behind... But he also didn't know what was going on. He didn't know how far down the road Remco was, and we heard a few other murmurs from other riders about the influence of, or well, the the influence of not having radios.
1: Yeah, I mean i think he'd at least know that remco was far enough ahead you know you're still going to see like on the motorbike uh the time split you know the time gaps like it's not like the peloton or whatever that main group it wasn't that big so you'd still be able to see what the time gap is you know on the on the leaderboard and also like you know guys were getting bottles relatively close to the end of the race so he would have known that like remco was off the front and had it So yeah, I guess the thing is I wouldn't be so worried about him, you know, chasing Remco down or something, but, um, yeah, I mean, it definitely affects it, but I think that's the thing. If you have a really good road captain and, um, you know, a team that works really well together is like, you're going to communicate well in the race. And I think, you know, they're going to go back to the car quite frequently to understand what's going on, things like that. So um i mean now if there's only one car in the race and it's behind the breakaway then maybe it's a little less clear but i just think um still with a good team and you know good communication uh you're not that far out of the loop um so so yeah
2: no certainly looking back at past world championships this was the first one for a long time it's been won by a, a big margin in fact there hasn't been i don't think it's been a world's won by over a minute this century um the the biggest previous gap was junior Junior Alaphilippe in, in 2021. So, well, that suggests, I mean, a large part of of this century we have been riding or the World Championships have been ridden without any radio. So um, it's a little bit binary and a little bit simplistic to say that they, they make the racing more or less exciting, more or less uncertain, more or less conducive to a rider dominating the way he did today. But Brian... Um, it's about time we got to you and your feelings about Remco. I know that's why people probably have, that's the main reason why people have tuned in today. Um, (laughs) Talk talk us through, talk us through your anguish, talk us through your pain. I mean, you said on, you said on Twitter, it was, it was a good advert for triathlon or something or worse to that effect. Um, There were other fairly, a fairly pejorative judgment on the the spectacle in general and going the, this whole sport decamping to the other side of the world for this, this of all things. Okay. Talk to his brother. Right. Okay.
0: I, I just need to preface it, uh, so I'm gonna avoid having like people send me mail bombs. But um, <laughs> the strongest. The stri- anyway. the- oh, right. Okay. But the strongest guy won today. Like he was the strongest in the welter. I was wrong about him never winning a Grand Tour. He was certainly the strongest today. I just think it it um, it meant the race wasn't very interesting once that he got himself into that break that the French team. Uh, created or, or shoehorned into the final part of, of, of the World Championships, I would have liked to have seen, and, and anyone could have won, in my opinion. But I would have liked to have seen Pokacza, fanard m- maybe you know one or two Italians, uh, Michael Matthews, and also m- uh, Evanipol for that sake, fight it out for the worlds. But it, it was just almost like we missed a, we missed pa- a lot of action because the attack came so early, and that's how he wins bike races and kudos for that i just it just left me a bit numb you know and, and i'm and I, I don't know maybe i should see someone about i just it just doesn't really evoke any feelings with me when when evnepol wins big bike race and, and and i'm sure at this point it's me who's there's something wrong with me or maybe i'm colorblind <laughs> colorblind to the depths of his personality or the or the mystique of the aura of rimco it it just it, it, somehow it just doesn't apply to me I don't like um I don't like ginger either. You know, there's just something I don't like gar- raw <laughs> garlic. There's just some things I don't like. And it's inexplicable and, and and the crazy thing is for me it's inexplicable in a subject matter where I, I feel fairly confident. I just can't put my finger on it. It just leaves me blank. You know? I
2: mean we've talked about this before. We talked about this kind of alchemy that goes into whether you like a rider or not. I mean I talked about it in relation to Tibo Pinot a few months ago about you know, it can come down to to the the phonetics of someone's name, the pedaling style, the you know what they whether they represent. Uh, I think as we talked about in the Vuelta, whether someone has enough it against or some sort of enough odds stacked against them to make you feel as though they're an underdog and they're triumph triumphing over some kind of adversity. It might not be obvious adversity, but yeah, Remco maybe falls short on on that score, doesn't he? Um, he's always felt as though he's been kind of groomed for for success and on this fast track to greatness. But I suppose the greatest tribute to his ability and his talent is that the most scintillating thing one would think theoretically in professional cycling is to see someone take the ball by the horns a long way from the finish and with panache and with courage go and win on their own. But unfortunately, he's turned that very... That very sort of style of riding into a into into something that's quite routine. I mean it's the way he's won most of his races.
1: I think that's probably why people are like, ah, oh, you know, it's like it's like once it gets off the front it's like a foregone conclusion that he's gonna win whereas maybe some other guys you know they're fighting they're like wrestling with the bike they look like they're giving it their all and like maybe they're gonna make it maybe they're not and then when people when when they win they're like oh that's awesome you know how cool like this guy gave everything whereas like he just looks so smooth and stable and strong and like Easy that I think people are like, oh well, this guy just makes it look easy. You know, it's not exciting because like he gets off the front. and It's like, oh damn, he won the race. You know, it's it's not like, oh, you know, is Lutsenko going to come back? Like, Lutsenko couldn't even stay stay on his wheel. You know, it's like it's pretty crazy. So I think maybe uh, guys like when when guys really have to struggle and work for it, and and it doesn't appear that he has to. So maybe that's one of the reasons. Well, chaps, that was what you made of it. Let's cross over
2: now to another very good friend of ours, very good friend of the podcast. And Mitch Docker was on the road in Wollongong. He was actually doing a a sort of bespoke DIY commentary today. I think he did all seven hours um, premiering what could be be a a regular feature from Mitch. Um, Anyway, I spoke to him as he was just leaving the finish. Here's what he made of the world's road race today.
4: I've been in the race. I was commentating for Life in the Peloton and Rafa, sort of pirate setup happening. Um, we're on the side of the race.
2: So, Mitch, seven hours in the hot seat. Um, I guess you're pretty yeah. tired. I guess you're pretty tired. But first, what are your hot takes, Mitch? We're interested in your hot takes um, because we are speaking only an hour after the race is finished.
4: My my hot takes were, you know. When they let Evnipol go, you know, my question was, was the question asked between, you know, Van Art and Evnipol, who wanted to pay for leadership? You know, who wanted to put down the money to say, hey, to the rest of the writers, guys, who, am I, who are we writing for? Because that, that question was up there, you know. <laughs> And actually, when it comes to national teams, it actually comes down to the checkbook.
2: They're yeah, you're talking literally. 10... You're talking literally, aren't you, yeah. Mitch? You know,
0: yeah. I'm talking
4: literally. Yeah. Guys actually put down the money and go, you know what? If you ride to me, I'm going to give you 10 grand. And the other guys go, you know what? I'm going to give you 15 grand. So it came down to that. But as we've always seen with Quick Step, they've got so many leaders. And in the classics, it's always who attacks first gets the leadership role. And we saw that with Evan Nepal. He attacked early, he got in the move, and he actually had the leadership. That meant Van Art couldn't chase him because he had his team out up the road. So he played it very smart um, in terms of a team tactic and also... He had the legs to finish it off as well.
2: I mean, just from the other team's point of view, as soon as Remco got into that move, the sort of second move that came across, I think it was 70-odd kilometres to go, did you sort of see the kind of... I sort of thought the shadow of the killer had already appeared in the room at that point, and there was an air of inevitability already from that point about what was going to happen, sure enough, you know, 30 kilometres later or so. is it? Did you have that sense as well?
4: Well, when he moves in such a good group that went across, there was also a quality group that went there that if the best guys could have gone with that, they would have. Um, So, yes, I totally agree with you that there was an element of the best riders are moving right now. If they could have gone, they would have gone. Um, So, 100%. A 70K to go, that's the thing we're seeing now with the racing. Things are happening earlier. It's no longer 30K to go, three laps to go, or... You know, four laps to go. It's early. they got to start early because everyone is so talented. Everyone's so calculated that 70K to go is no longer an early attack. It is the attack.
2: Also, Mitch, this was a good example of, well, as you say, the changing style of racing in the sense that, you know, the tr- traditional configuration of a World Championships is that, you know, a group of, for want of a better word, minnows goes away and they get a huge gap, 10, 15 minutes. And that didn't happen this time. The French took it on already on the is it Mount Kilda climb, the first climb. And... There was always well there was never more than about two or three minutes, you know, in the last hundred kilometres between the the groups and the race was on I mean the race was on from Mount Kilda, wasn't it?
4: Mount Kilda. I completely did not see that happening. I completely underestimated that. I already threw out there that I was gonna get nothing climb. And as a fan, I love seeing that. But as a pro, as a rider, I hate that. <laughs> that the fact that they raced up a climb early in the race and split the bunch, you would hate that as a pro. You're like, what the hell's going on here? But as a fan and as an organizer of the race, that's what you want to happen. I saw that climb so early on thinking, why would they put that in? That's not even going to matter. But it happened. And France made it happen. They put two guys up the road. You know, it up that climb. It completely split the bunch. Actually, split split the bunch between race contenders and climbers. We saw the climbers all make that front group. You saw Jai Hindley there. You saw Ben O'Connor. So, you know, it actually separated the difference of riders. Um, Tough climb, and we saw the guys who attacked early. An Australian guy who rode for Malta, Dan Bonello. He anticipated that move and actually made the front group by getting caught on the climb
2: Mitch you mentioned the Aussies there obviously a medal for them with Michael Matthews That they they can't be disappointed I don't suppose um, particularly as I, I guess most people will agree this evening that the strongest guy did win the race but what did you make of the Aussies generally and what are people what did people on the, on the ground make of the Aussie performance do you think? Look I
4: think in the end of the day they're always happy with the medal um, and it was as a great ride in the end of the day but you know michael matthews himself he's always been on the cusp of winning the world championships and again again close but no cigar so he's going to be completely disappointed with that but for the exterior person not knowing any of that history it's a great result evan paul he was in a league of his own you know i actually written wrote michael matthews off one lap to go he was not there. He was in that group behind. I didn't expect him to come back. Mm. I thought that, you know, um, Lusenko was going to get second, and we we're going to see a fight. Maybe even Jai only get third. But the fact that the group came back and Michael Matthews get back up there, I thought, wow, that's a sort of a result from a comeback. So, um, you know, I think in hindsight, everyone will be quite happy with that ride. But in the long run, everyone will be disappointed with the result because, well, I know Michael himself, he's been there. He, does, he doesn't care about being on the podium. Mm-hmm. He wants to win the Rainbow Jersey. He's been there before.
2: And Mitch was, would you say it was much of a festive atmosphere generally? I mean, certainly, well, the weather was a lot better today than it had been in the previous days and the crowds were a lot bigger. And this looked to me as though, well, it looked to me like the kind of day that would, would have lived up to the expectations of the organisers in particular and the UCI, I suppose, as well. But um, what, what was the mood like? What was the atmosphere like from your point of view?
4: Okay. In comparison to yesterday with the wounds race, the, the women's race created almost like a classic feel, like the Belgian classics with the rain, the mm. toughness of the race. It was quite nice in a way, but I think if the men's had that today, it also wouldn't have added to the crowd the atmosphere exterior of the race. Mm. I think they were a little bit disappointed in Wollongong with the participation of the exterior audience. You know, everyone in Wollongong wanted more people. They thought it was going to be huge atmosphere. And today delivered the crowds were phenomenal today um, maybe not at the level of say European level but at the end of the day you got to remember it's Australia it is Wollongong it's not a place that is known for cycling so adding all that in I think the crowds are quite good the weather was perfect you know they've got to be happy with that and the riders would have been happy with that you know I've got to think from the peloton perspective. The riders were wrapped with that conditions. The conditions weren't too hot, it was sunny, perfect conditions for racing.
2: Mitch you're heading back to Sydney now um, where I don't know Mattia van der Poel I don't know whether he's got another date with the police um, in Sydney this evening um, we're hearing all sorts of things various things coming out of the, the latest is that he wasn't on the same floor in the team hotel as the rest of his teammates he was with his girlfriend um, you, have you got any intel on this Mitch this kind of breaking developing story that sort of overshadowed this- I
4: can't believe this yeah I can't believe this story like I've only been fed sort of drip feed during the commentary um, I can't believe what's going on here. You know, as far as I understand, two young girls were sort of mucking around on his door, you know, banging on the door, just having a bit of fun all through the night. You know, 13, 12, 13-year-olds, 13 you know, just human, having fun with it. He ended up pushing one of the girls down to the ground and then got, assault, you know, got charged with an assault charge and now he's going to court on Tuesday. That's the story I've heard. Is that true? I've got no idea that's what I've heard but during the commentary today. Can you believe that before the World Championships? He has got such a bitter taste in his mouth about Australia. You don't want that. Um, I don't even know. Is that the real story? Who knows? That's what I heard today. He pulled out. You know, That's what I heard mid-race. I was just as dumbfounded as you hearing that story mid-race. I couldn't believe it. That was the reason why he pulled out.
2: The, the Wollongong youths have a reputation for this kind of disruptive behaviour, Mitch? Um, you're the man who can tell us.
4: Well, he wasn't saying in Wollongong. He oh, no, was he was, was in Sydney, sorry.
2: Yeah, that, he was yeah. saying in
4: Cronulla. I went down. I went down and saw Dylan van Baal a couple of days ago where the Dutch were saying, close to where I'm saying in, in Sydney, so... You know, that's not the reputation of Sydney. You know, young girls knocking on doors that I know of. <laughs> I don't know if that's the reputation of anywhere. I think it's just a freak act. And maybe this story is going to un- unravel the real story. What happened? Who knows? You know, Matthew Vanderpool. Maybe the pressure built up too much.
0: Van heeft het moeilijk trapt
2: even door bij schaken naar een grotere verstelling. Krikkelio valt. Valpartij grote Krikkelio.
4: Valpartij.
1: Dramatisch einde van dit wereldkampioenschap, dames en heren. Dat weer de geschiedenis alleen gaan, zoals dat van 1963 in Ronse met Van Looy en Beijt.
2: Maneuver van Bauer niet toelaatbaar, niet geoor. Fernandez, Juan Fernandez, alweer. Wat was a little vignette, a little reminder of a famous incident in the World Championships, 1988 World Championships. Claude Clicheillon um, being, well, effectively run into the barriers by, not deliberately of course, by Steve. of Canada uh, allowing Maurizio Fondriest to steal away and win the 1988 World Championships. Now we heard that, I thought we'd hear that because that was definitely, I would say, one of the more shocking moments in World Championship history and one of the moments that caused most debate and controversy thereafter few others i was i was casting my mind back and i came up with the, the following chaps um another one from exactly the same location Rune in belgium 1963 benoni behate who was supposed to lead out his captain the belgian team captain rick van loy um he ended up beating rick van loy in the sprint van loy was so angry that he tried to run Behate into the barriers um close to the finish line and van loy by all accounts thereafter went out of his way to turn behate's life and career into a bit of a misery so much so that behate um quit the sport when he was 26 um davide rebelin's argentine passport remember that chaps when davide rebelin declared he was going to ride for argentina i didn't know about that Yeah, and the paperwork just didn't quite come through in time. And uh, I remember attending a press conference just two or three days before the road race when Rebellin announced that, alas, he wouldn't be allowed to ride the world championships in his home city, Verona, because his Argentine passport had not come through. And then he abandoned um, his attempts to become Argentinian. Um, Around about the same time, same period, 2003, uh, Brian, remember Igor Asaloa winning in Hamilton in Canada? And... They're saying to Spanish journalists afterwards that Paolo Bettini had offered him money for the victory, and there was threats of there was a legal threat from Bettini. There was talk of a UCI investigation. Nothing really came of it. They sort of, um, they smoothed that one over. 2005 World Championships in Madrid. The British riders Tom Southern and Charlie Wraggalias were accused of riding in support of the Italian team. They both rode for Italian trade teams. Initially, they denied it, but um, subsequently emerged that they had, in fact. Um, received a small financial reward for riding ostensibly for the Italians, and the British team coach John Herity resigned as a result of that. And um, 2007 in Stuttgart, the Germans were in a, a, a justifiable froth about doping for various reasons. T-Mobile had just imploded, and there were lots of well, there were there were scandals popping like well like popcorn um, every few days uh, around that time and Stuttgart the organisers of Stuttgart Worlds declared that Eddie Merckx was not welcome to attend And, and there were various other former illustrious former riders who weren't welcome to attend that Worlds because in Merckx's case he had tested positive three times in his career so they were they were the sort of were well, a few scandalous moments that came to mind when I was thinking about this this morning. Why was I thinking about it? Because I, and I guess you guys as well, woke to the news that Matthew van der Poel had been arrested or taken into police custody overnight because of some kind of disturbance at his team hotel in Sydney and then some kind of altercation thereafter with two teenage girls... And um, he did take the start of the road race in Wollongong, but he abandoned shortly thereafter. And he will now appear in court, we're told, on Tuesday, to well, to explain himself. Chaps, what did you what did you make of all this?
1: Yeah, I mean that kind of sucks. Crazy, <laughs> crazy.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't know. The interesting thing was actually no, you in, go, sorry, Larry, just to, as a. As, I think it's relevant to the psychology of the story that he did a few interviews at the start and before it only actually eventuated after the start. And, uh, he, he was said he was fine. He was looking forward to, you know, fighting it out to, uh, uh to try and become world champion. And then, you know, little did he, did we know, uh, 45 minutes later he was gone.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't see that the, the interviews from before, but I saw a bit from after and, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like it was a great situation for him. And, you know, I think, like, psychologically, that can just totally ruin you for a race.
2: This isn't the first... You mean sleeping sleeping in the jailhouse? Yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was like a, a return to the good old days or bad old days of professional cycling when arrests arrests were a fairly common occurrence, but for different reasons, <laughs> um, in and around in and around big races. Um, chaps, this is not the first time something like this has happened. In 2016 French National Championships, Nassiel Bouani was disturbed by wedding guests, and there there was an altercation there, and um, he emerged from that with a black eye, I think, and abandoned the French National Championships the following day. Larry. Um, any hijinks in your hotels ever anything that's ever kept you awake at night i mean we, we've heard stories in the past going back way back decades back um riders being disturbed you know pebbles on the win on the window of their hotel rooms or oh. um you know deliberate disturbances to stop yeah. them winning
1: i i mean i don't think there's ever been anything on any of the teams i've been on of like something deliberate you know obviously like yeah, you like stay at hotels that other people are staying at, right? You know, you're not like the only, I mean, sometimes maybe you are, but often you're not the only sort of group in the hotel. And so then like, yeah, I mean, you know, people be partying in the hotel or, you know, there's like a bar at the hotel that's like pretty loud. So, you know, it happens. Um, But I mean, this sounds like, you know, they were like knocking on his door and stuff. So like, obviously i don't think he's gonna go out of this his way to like push a 13 to 14 year old girl in the hallway which is what sounds like happened um you know like if it wasn't something like that was really you know um impacting him i guess uh obviously he didn't deal with that very well um but uh but yeah i mean i guess people lose their cool sometime and like you know he was a favorite for this um this world's, But, you know, I, I guess, like, what would have been better is if he just contacted, you know, like, the director, or, you know, the manager, or whatever, the team, and just said, hey, look, like, can you get these, can you handle this situation? Um, because, like, yeah, it didn't go very well, did it? No, and apparently very out of character. I mean, certainly
2: his dad, Audrey, said it was extremely out of character, as you would expect his father to say, I suppose. But, chaps, um, before the short commercial interlude just a few minutes ago, we heard from Mitch Docker and... Well he introduced another topic which is not scandalous per se, we know that this has gone on in the past, um, the issue of teams, um, national teams, federations and also trade teams putting up money for as a reward for victory in the World Championships and nominal team captains thereafter sort of pitching it to their national teammates, uh, sort of Um, proposing how uh, a win bonus would be divided and mitch even suggested that this could have impacted how the belgian team rode and their their decision certainly looked like it um, to favor or to at least allow remco to do what he did today Uh, larry is this something that still goes on because for years, we heard it did in the Italian team in particular, but I, I'm not sure it went on in every team. What, what what, do you know about these arrangements?
1: Yeah, I mean, so we talked, you know, a little bit about this off the air, but I think, you know, the thing is, is for sure, whoever wins will give his teammates and staff and everything probably a bit of a bonus, you know. Um, you know, he'll, uh, you know, I, I doubt he'd take a cut of the money that, he might have won, you know, I'm sure in Belgium, they do have some sort of bonus from the national team, uh, the national federation, if you win the world championships, and I'm sure it's sizable. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I think, uh, I doubt there's something agreed before, like, uh, well, you know, if you work for me, I'll give you this much. And then, you know, sort of, a, a you know, fight to who's going to pay the most. I think it's really more like, you know, hey, Maybe they even discuss like you know the two leaders in the team like, well, this would be like a you know a good uh, sum of money to give our our teammates um should one of us win, so you know i think I think they'll definitely um you know I guess give their their teammates um a little a little bonus after the race for the help, but uh I don't think it's necessarily something that you know they'd sort of fight it out between them to who's gonna pay more money to try to uh get more help i think uh, you know they probably went in with two leaders and i think you know either of them if they won would probably have given you know their teammates like a nice uh bonus uh so yeah that's kind of what i would assume happened uh rather than the other way around
2: brian you were probably privy to the contracts at leopard track weren't you did this was this kind of thing were the provisions for this kind of thing
0: I mean, for some riders, there's a provision for a, a, a certain and quite lofty bonus if you win the World Championship. Why only certain riders? The road rate. Because certain riders, if you want to make sure that they're happy with their contract and they ask for more money, you, you'll say, well, there is a good, that's a realistic possibility okay. that say you win either Roubaix, Flanders, Worlds or whatever. And then, then you most often you would add a bonus to the year after because... And and it's not your budget doesn't get bigger because you get a world champion in the year you know just two months before the end of a, a budget year, you you need to find that money for the year after, and you have to structure that in, in your in your budget. So I, I, yeah there's some there's definitely some teams that have that kind of money in their cash flow, but but not a lot, not even at the highest level. So so that's why. But but don't forget that this is a national team enterprise even if they're going to ride at jersey for obviously for the for the world tour team the year after so the national team has to be built on loyalty and discipline and i and i also think that the belgians did that and and if you look at it even if you don't take into regard whatever bonuses they could be this is how they should race if they wanted to win it this is how evan Paul was supposed to behave himself if he was to be a factor in the race not like he was last year when he attacked with 200 to go this was his possibility and had that not eventuated then there was a good possibility for Wout And then he would follow either do a move himself or follow moves from riders like uh, uh, Seppogaccia or maybe the Italians or Matthews or whichever. So so that's how they, they should have ridden the race either way. And often, and Larry, you, you, you probably know this better than I, riders who have a possibility or have a good team for the world, they have designated helpers. If they show up with eight riders and two captains, there would be three riders designated or maybe two riders designated to each of those captains. And and those roles certainly, to my knowledge, don't change. Yeah, anything.
1: for sure. Like I I heard today um, in Remco's interview after the race that like Eve Lompart was sort of like his guy, you know. So Eve Lompart was supposed to guide him through the whole first part of the race, and I'm sure Wow also had, you know, his guy. And then I'm sure depending on the scenario of the race, you know, like whoever was still in the bunch went all in for WoW, and whoever was in the group ahead went all in for Remco. So, you know, maybe they would have like one sort of um, guide, you know, one guy um, to stay with each of them like all the time, every P-stop, you know, every anything mechanical, whatever, and then um, the rest kind of like work for whoever's around them.
0: I mean, we've even seen with the Italian teams, I remember in, in Lisbon in 2001, and even earlier also in 2000 in Plouet, the, the complete meltdown of loyalty mm. within the Italian teams. Do you remember mm. uh, Tiralongo, for instance, in in um, I think that was in, in Lisbon or Casa Grande in Plouet, where you saw that there wasn't any internal coherence and there was a lot of rivalry rivalry within that team. And I think that's changed a lot over the years. They, they look a lot more disciplined. And, and I, I think based on the mistakes they made last year, the Belgium national team, they had to go about it in a different way this year, and, and they certainly
2: did. Yeah, I mean that thing always. That, that kind of thing always used to happen, certainly in the Italian team, and it, a lot of it was based on the the, the rivalries between the trade teams. Um, you know, they were sworn enemies. The, some of the trade teams, Fasabortolo and Mape were huge enemies. So um, it would kind of be over my dead body. Um, would I help? you know, their their team leader in the world championships. And, you know, even looking at the Belgian team, you know, you guys there were talking about designated helpers. I mean, I can imagine Nathan Van Hoydonk was probably well, Van Art's designated bodyguard. And certainly Peter Seri and Yves Lampart usually ride right for Quick Step were conspicuously well they were they were instrumental both of them in in Remco winning. Um Chaps, I just wanted to ask. Well, I wanted to ask you, Brian, about the Danish team. Um, we talked last week about Mads Pedersen not being there. There's been a lot of debate about that, whether it was the right or the wrong decision. Um, my old friend um, Alexander Kamp, who I I had down as a bit of a, a dark horse. Um, to win the World Championships or to do well in the World Championships. He didn't do particularly well today. And in fact, he was very critical. He provided, self-critical, I should say. He provided one of the quotes of the World Championships um, on Twitter. He said, if Remco rode like Maradona today, I rode like Stig Tofting, is it, Brian? Yeah. Stig Tofting. Yeah, yeah, the border yeah. Border. Um, Stig Tofting was a, quite an industrial midfielder, was he, for Denmark? Uh, football reference,
0: I'm afraid. Yes, yeah, not not the most elegant of players, but but some yeah, not at all actually the, the exact contrary to the, to Maradona, but yeah, they, they called him the long and it wasn't a, there you go. It wasn't a, it wasn't a there you go. Well, what do you what do you make of the Danes in general? Based on what they had, I think I think they went into the race with with a good tactic because they had they only had outsiders, so they did they didn't they, they couldn't be expected to take any major responsibility as they would have had if Matt Peterson was there. And I, I'm, in my opinion, Matthias Gelmos, or Jensen, as it said on the screen, he would have had a, a pretty good shot at a silver medal or bronze hadn't they pokered everything away in the last kilometer. And this is his first world championships, and I think he wrote really well, getting himself into the right move. Uh, but he was just, uh, he, they played it cool, and he was one of those guys. And he actually went, ended up being 10th. Which shows that he was he still had a lot of legs at the end, even after they got caught. And uh, yeah, that's just too bad. That's a long way to go to poker away medal. So a big disappointment. And and you know Denmark has has good traditions. You know, winning with Mass Pedersen's third last year with Valgren. Uh, but this year, you know, not having being a god, not having Asgreen, not having Valga, um, Valgren, not having uh, Mass Pedersen first and foremost. I think they made, a, they made a good play for a for medal, but they, they just, yeah, it, they lost it at the end because Skelmos and that group couldn't work it out amongst them. Some other notable performances. Um,
2: Alexander Kristoff. I mean, what a record he's got in the World Championships. Often, you know, we make the mistake of, of viewing races only through the prism of who wins or who finishes on the podium. But Alexander Christoph, um since 2014, he's had an 8th, a 4th, a 7th, a 2nd, a 7th. Um, and today was in the top 10 again so um, hats off to him um, the British team, I mean Ben Tulip had an outstanding ride the first time in the senior worlds. but Fred Wright and well Ethan Hayter was ninth in the bunch of rim, but I don't think they were, well I don't think Ethan Hayter was necessarily on his best day but it was still a very good performance and Biniam Gamay we didn't really see did we and um, obviously he wasn't I've definitely on think top uh, four.
0: we should mention Peter Sagan yeah. actually finishing finishing up there. I think that was a, a, maybe not a surprise, but then again, to me, it was that he's that he was up there uh, in the mix of it at least in that in that big group. Um, I, I haven't seen him being particularly shiny for a very long time.
1: The cycling podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled
3: by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for fuelling our ride around Scotland these past few days. You can listen to the whole Tour de Coste series in November when it's released for Explore, by the way. I've been sipping on the Beta Fuel, Science in Sports Beta Fuel powder, which mixes up into a drink with water over the past few days, and it's been keeping me going. I must admit, at the start of the ride on day one, I made some real rookie errors. I went far too long without anything to eat or drink. Purely complacency, I was feeling absolutely fine on the bike and uh, I just just forgot to pick up some more supplies from our broom wagon. And before I knew it, hours had gone by without anything serious to eat and I knew that I wasn't taking on board enough of the beta fuel. And I knew I was making the mistake... And I suppose it can happen to everybody, but I just didn't do anything about it. And then the next day or so, I did feel that I was suffering as a result. And so I've been really concentrating on taking on board as much of that beta fuel as I can. And uh, I feel right as rain this evening after 128 kilometers, I think it was. I did have a beta fuel gel as an emergency uh, ration towards the end of today's ride, just to make sure that I finished strongly. And yeah, I can't recommend the Beta Fuel highly enough. It's been a real revelation to me since I first used it seriously back in April uh, for back-to-back riding. It just means that you're keeping well fueled up consistently through the day because it's an easy way to take on board a good amount of carbohydrate in an easily digestible form. You can get 25% off the Beta Fuel and everything else at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP-25.
2: And will Remco be able to cope with everything that's coming his way now in Belgium?
0: No, because he doesn't go to Belgium. He goes immediately to Sydney. Over the next few months and yeah, years, there's yeah. going to be a lot of attention. It's already good that he leaves for Sydney with uh, Sweryar and Meccano. It's... Uh,
3: Everybody will calm down a little bit.
2: Well, chaps, that was the heady last evening of the Vuelta a España. Remco Evenepoel had just won Quick Step's first ever Grand Tour. Patrick Lefebvre had a big smile on his face and actually no glass of wine in his hand, which I was quite surprised about, but I'm sure one was about to materialise. Um, however, he he was quite... Happy that Remco Evenepoel wasn't going back to Belgium immediately, and he wasn't going to be engulfed by all of the hype and all of the hysteria that was already being whipped up around him winning the Vuelta a Espana. He is now going to return to Belgium, and he's going to have to deal with all of that now, isn't he, Larry? Is this the big? Is this the only big doubt about the future direction of Remco Evenepoel's career? Um, how is he going to cope with? the intensity and the heat of the spotlight in Belgium.
1: I mean, to be honest, I think he's already had to deal with a lot of uh, intensity and heat of the spotlight. And now it'll be a lot more positive, you know, because in the past it was always like, oh, everyone's all disappointed. You know, this guy was supposed to be the next Mercs. Oh, this guy was supposed to win a Grand Tour. You know, he was good at the start of the Giro and then he wasn't good anymore. You know, oh, he didn't win enough, you know. And now they're going to be like, oh, my God, you know, like he's... He's a god, you know, he is going to back to Belgium and he will be a god there. So um, I think it'll be maybe almost a little bit easier than all of the negative press that he's had to deal with. But obviously, I mean, Belgium is going to be going crazy, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's definitely not going to be easy, uh, but I'm pretty sure he'll be able to manage just because I think he's been under so much media uh pressure um for the last however many years since he started his career even before he was a pro that I think he's probably pretty well um I guess um he he, he'll be able to cope I think um but yeah it's definitely gonna be big and I'm sure the parade the party whatever when he gets back to Belgium is gonna be pretty insane
2: I mean, Brian, you've uh, you've dealt with a lot of big stars, uh, from Cancellara, Schleck brothers, and so on and so forth over the years. Wiggins, as well as uh, Team Sky. I mean, I'm. I tend to think that in these cases, you know, we can talk about the sort of the edifice you need to build around a, a budding star and, you know, the, the right management and the right advisor and so forth and, and so on. But so much is dictated by an individual's coping capacities and their skill and their also to what extent they can enjoy their status. Um, and and there's only so much that can be added, brought to the party by advisors and an entourage what do you think
0: no I, I completely agree and that i think was a was a worry around evan Paul, especially when he came back from that horrendous crash in in the the of lombardy uh, and then for some for some reason whatever we talked about that numerous of times they his first comeback race was the g run and i don't think that helped him in any possible way uh, that was poorly managed, but and now, um, yeah, he has a lot of experience, and so he knows sort of what to expect. But it's taken up, uh, it's on a net another level now that he he won a Grand Tour, and he's a world champion. Uh, it's not, I don't think he's going to find any peace in Belgium. And I, yeah. if I were him, I would consider getting maybe another place somewhere else where he can be a little bit more uh, on his own when he's not uh, at a bike race. And and the thing is now, yeah, you could say that the pressure is off, but but then again, not because. He's still to have his debut at the Tour de France, you know, and 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 until he actually is there and is competitive and potentially a, a threat or a major competitor to Pogacar, Wingegor, Bernal, and those guys, the, the Belgians are not going to leave him alone. They're gonna they're gonna start talking about him and the Tour tomorrow. Basically, they're gonna have to sort of. They're going to pressurize the team, when is he going, when he's going to, you know, now he's so good, why, do, why don't Why do you let him go to the tour? I mean, the Giro is already rumored to have some 70 kilometers of time trial, so it, it's they, they, you know, they're laying it out in front of him. But the Giro is the Giro and everyone wants to see him at the tour, especially now that we have this sort of golden generation, even if he's too young to be part of it, with uh, Pogacar, Vingegor and, and Bernal. So it, we're living in great times for cycling, but I'm not sure it's always going to be fun games on the PR side for, for Remco.
2: Um, Larry, how much, uh, or how important is it that he, he's well liked in the peloton? I mean, in the last two or three years, we've had, we've had a a few relatively dominant riders, Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Rogic, who have almost been unusual in the in how how unanimous the affection or the support has been for them, also in the peloton I think I mean correct me if I'm wrong um, but that's unusual in the history of cycling usually the best rider has had certain rivalries and, and certainly they've had people who, who have not liked them, um, is it important for Remco that he, you know we talk a lot about humility, is it important that he keeps his feet on the ground also vis-a-vis
1: his fellow pros. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think <clears throat> a little bit, but but the thing is, is like, I I would say when he first came in the peloton, he had sort of a different attitude than he does now. So you know, I think uh, he kind of uh, he calmed down a bit. Maybe I would say, you know, like, and um, I I would say like he's probably more well liked now than he was when he first came to the peloton. So I would say he's like, in general i don't know a relatively polite guide to other riders in the peloton you know which i would say wasn't the case for certain other riders um you know i think like for example sagan um in his heyday you know i mean he was loved by every single person um in the media and like you know all the fans they just thought he was the greatest thing on earth But like, you know, in the Peloton, he kind of rode like a bit of a bully, you know, like he just ride wherever Mm. he wanted, he'd kind of push people out of his way. And the thing is, is he was such a good bike handler that like, you know, things that weren't a risk for him were maybe a risk for some guys around him who Mm. weren't as good of bike Mm. handlers. So, you know, I think it's one of these things where like, um, there's occasionally a disconnect between how the public feels about a rider and how the Peloton, uh, the guys in the Peloton feel um, about the rider. But I would say like... The public probably is a little bit divided on Remco, uh as we can see with uh, Brian. Um but like I, I would say the Pelt or sorry, yeah, the public and the Peloton is probably about equally divided. You know, I would say everyone respects how impressive he is as a rider. Um and you know, like he's not like going around like <clears throat> like a huge dick or something in the bunch. So, um you know, I I think he kind of keeps to himself mostly. Uh so it's it's I wouldn't say he's disliked too much. So
0: do you think the one thing though and and maybe that's also somehow the root of my my issue sometimes yeah. with certain riders is because I don't really like the atmosphere around the team because the team sometimes gives off an impression that to me is not super likable. Yeah. You know, I I they have a, they have some of the best riders in the world, I just sometimes feel that uh yeah, it's it's hard for me consistently to like the Wolfpack, that whole yeah, the, yeah, whole the boys thing club. All, yeah, that doesn't really it doesn't appeal to me at all. And maybe <laughs> I've been, I maybe I've sort of uh, done like the guilt by association thing with Remco and and and, and that part of uh, Quickstep.
1: Yeah, maybe you know, like what I actually find is that some of the riders who have less high of a status um, assume that because they're on Quickstep, they can like treat anyone else in the bunch however they want, you know. Um, and it's actually, I would say a lot of the guys who are like more of the leaders and stuff aren't like that at all. So I find that kind of a unique sort of thing, but, but actually it's kind of funny to me because I would say this whole like, you know, wolf pack thing, uh, in air quotes, like, um, to me, it reminds me a lot more of like American sport, you you know? Sorry.
2: Says the man, says the man from the Wolverine state. Is it the Wolverine state? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there you go. No,
1: but you you know what I mean. Like, like I would say, like you know, NFL team, you know, American football, things like that. You know, there's this like crazy team spirit. Like, yeah, let's go out and smash everyone. You know, like we're we're part of this like uh, you know whatever group. I don't know. Blah blah blah. The boys' club. Whereas like in cycling, we really kind of miss that. And so. I would say, like, it's kind of a good thing that they've developed because, like, I think there's, like, a super good team spirit there. Mm. You know, like, um, Bob Jungle's on my team. He was there for a few years. And he said, like, you know, the team spirit there is, like, unbeatable. And he thinks that's, like, one of the reasons they're as good as they are. So, um, you know, I would say there's definitely something to that. Even if, like, from the outside people are like, oh, my God, whatever, the wolf pack, you know. But, like, I think there's something to that that I think I would say a lot of teams in cycling kind of miss. But maybe that's just me being American. I don't know.
2: <laughs> Chaz, one last question about, not about Remco directly, but about a uh, Belgian, about Wout van Aert. Um, but I think by most people's estimation, has been the rider or the best rider in the world, if, or certainly in the top three or four in the last couple of years. Um, however, in terms of monuments, world championships, his Palmares is still looking a little bit thin in the sense that um, he still only has one monument to his name Milan Remo 2020 uh fourth today how will he be feeling honestly deep down do you think today
1: i mean i think he'll be obviously disappointed because like he was one of the big favorites he's you know i mean just crushed the whole year um and so i think he probably obviously well i'm sure his Objective today was the win and nothing less. So I think even if he was second, he would have been disappointed um, Obviously, you know, it's great for the Belgian team um, They won, but I think personally uh, he'll be disappointed because like a guy like him, you know Like everything he's done in the last couple of years like it's really only the win that counts
0: Yeah, I agree and he's had some very significant second places um, and I, I saw so he he races to win he he'll, he'll have fun at the party and this probably going on as we speak but i i, I think he's he, he's racing the world for himself in the belgium jer- in national uh, jersey but he 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 wants the rainbow jersey and, and you know i i think we all know that he, he has a good chance of getting it eventually um, I, I just don't sometimes when you see the the amount of racing and and, and the level he races at it's astonishing to me that that he can keep performing at that level, and then also, you know, sometimes you know just crushing it at the cyclocross season. I yeah. mean, what when does this guy ever have a break? Maybe, maybe he should potentially race a little bit less, and then you know, or less hard when he does, and not dominating every single stage of the tour. <laughs> that could that could give him a, a that that potential winning edge, I think, in in some of the biggest races, one day races, especially. Yeah,
1: I, I definitely agree. Like, I, I think there's not many riders that you see who really. I mean, dominate like that from start to finish. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's possible he just got a little tired by this Worlds too, you know.
2: Yeah, we mentioned Sagan. It sort of reminds me of Sagan's career arc really before 2015. He won, Sagan won his first Worlds in 2015. And he won his first monument, actually, the following spring, Tour of Flanders. And then he, he had a bit of a purple patch the next three years where, where he won a lot. But kind of similar to, well, Van Aert was very dominant prior to that. But um, hadn't really unlocked the key as far as the monuments were concerned. Um, Chaps, I think that just about concludes the entertainment from the World Championships this year in Australia. Um, Again, because the musical features are proving so popular, we are going to play out with something. It's not... It's not going to be Va, which also went down a storm, the 2008 World Championship <laughs> anthem. That went down a storm last week. Um, however, if, over the last few weeks and months, there have been a few choice pieces of music surfaced on the internet, dedicated hymns, odes to Remco Evenepoel, and I've picked one out for us. We are going to hear Go Remco, which apparently is a, is a parody of Go Acid, which... I think, by all accounts, is, is, has been playing in all the clubs and discotheques <laughs> um, in Belgium this summer. So that's what we're going to hear um, as we go out in style, hopefully, this evening. Brian, I'm going to thank you. And Brian, I think you did pretty well. I don't think you, I don't think you earned too many new Belgian enemies tonight
0: that's that's okay that's okay i live a fairly secluded life so i'll be I'll, I'll, however i will be going to a couple of races uh, here in the last part of the season so we'll see if there'll be any death threats <laughs>
2: See if there's any See if there's a target on your back and thank you to to you
0: the Motown marvel
2: larry warbass
1: thank you yeah good to be here again nice nice to uh yeah chat about some racing again
2: go remco <laughs>
0: naar deze Remco Evenepoel Het is toch niet te geloven wat die kerel hier aan het doen is Zijn naam is Remco en hij zit
1: op een vello. Hij is in Spanje en daar rijdt Remco solo Move over Roglic, je fiets maakt naar het schroot. Het is over, want dit groentje rijdt in het rood Hij komt uit Schendam, een Brusselse ghetto Cannibal maar het visa on the go Non-stop op kop, Airocogo rijdt voorop Twee jaar terug
0: over kop, nu terug aan de top
1: Go and for was and for go and for moore
2: daniel for and for God and for go and
0: for and for go and for and for and for and